like a kid on Christmas morning. For many of us, this familiar expression immediately brings to mind images of heartfelt laughter, childlike abandon, and pure, unadulterated joy. Between the snow and the presents and the cookies, a kid on Christmas morning can barely contain herself. For my parents, who I'm grateful are here today, this phrase probably also brings to mind images of me as a child, so out of my mind, excited for Christmas morning that I quite literally could not contain myself. And by myself, I mean the contents of my stomach. No diagnosable illness, just excited. Yes, the excitement of Christmas morning made me toss my Christmas cookies, not once, but every single year. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> she could barely contain herself like a kid on Christmas morning. It's a beautiful image of pure delight, one that unfortunately I've just ruined for you forever. <laughs> but I think there's another phrase, another image perhaps a more slightly nuanced one with which we can connect on a different, dare I say, deeper emotional level. Like a kid on Christmas Eve. For all the gladness, thrill, and wonder of Christmas morning, there's just as much hope, anticipation, and wondering in the moment before the moment. That's especially true on Christmas Eve. We've been waiting for this day all year, watching fall turn to winter, hearing carols on the radio, seeing decorations at the mall since September. Everything around us practically shouts, it's all most here. In many ways, I think that sometimes Unfortunately for that child on Christmas Eve, somewhere between the sound of sleigh bells and the choir of angels, there can also be heard a whisper of doubt, a fear of disappointment. What if I wasn't good enough? What if I don't get that thing I've really longed for? What if in the morning all that's in my stocking is one cold, hard lump of coal. I've waited all year for this, but should I really get my hopes up? I think this is exactly where we find the Israelites in Joshua 3. They're like kids on Christmas Eve. They've been waiting, longing for the fulfillment of God's promise of the land. And they haven't just been waiting for 364 days. They've been waiting for generations. This promise first came to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to Joseph, and even to the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. And even then, when the promise seemed farther away than it had ever been, hope remained, because the promise remained. And God, faithful to his promise, raised up Moses to lead God's people out of slavery and into the promised land. But it wouldn't come quickly. And now, finally, 
here they are at the edge of the Jordan. Just across this one river is everything all of Israel has been hoping for. So certainly there's excitement, and there's anticipation, but I wonder if they didn't also hear that familiar whisper of doubt. You get that sick feeling that maybe all this will only end in disappointment. Moses, the leader who brought them this far, is dead. And now the Jordan is at flood stage. The water's high and overflowing the river's banks, making crossing this final boundary into the promised land all the more difficult. I wonder if the Israelites feared God had brought them this far only to abandon them at the 11th hour. I wonder if on the bank of the Jordan, on the brink of walking into the long-awaited promise of God, they weren't tempted to try to take control from the very one who got them this far. I wonder if when the Israelites found themselves just across this river from what they've been longing for, so close they could almost taste the milk and the honey, if they weren't tempted to try to build a bridge, maybe dig a tunnel, build a boat, or put on some floaty arms and just try to swim across already. Sure, they trusted God, but maybe they should have a backup plan. You know, just in case. Being prepared to take matters into our own hands in case the Almighty doesn't come through is just being practical, not untrusting, right? And when we tell God how and when we want his promises, that's okay, isn't it? The temptation to control, to somehow try by our own strength to guarantee the fulfillment of a promise or assure the goodness of a gift, it's strong. And it's certainly not foreign to Israel, who through their efforts to do things their own way have already earned 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. This tendency, almost reaction, to control and manipulate is deeply rooted in our sinful human nature. And we see it come through even in children. You see, in my family, when one of the kids lost a tooth, the tooth fairy came. Now, this occasion called for a very simple exchange. Leave a tooth under the pillow before bed, and at some point during the night, the tooth fairy will come, take out the tooth, and leave a dollar bill in its place. Easy. And that's exactly the way it worked. Until one time, my little sister Hannah decided to leave along with her tooth a note requesting that the tooth fairy not only leave the conventional monetary bequest, but also a toy, and that the tooth fairy just leave the tooth as well. <laughs> now, the tooth fairy did, by the way, honor that request, um, I believe resulting in harmonicas for all three children. Um, Mom and Dad, I don't know what you were thinking. <laughs> but the tooth fairy also left a note expressing something to the effect of, don't you ever try to tell me how to do my job again. <laughs> that part was good. Now, let's be perfectly clear. I did not spend three and a half years in seminary to come away believing the tooth fairy is an adequate metaphor for the triune God. <laughs> Thank you. 
I do, however, believe the gist of the tooth fairy's response to my overzealous little sister bears a striking resemblance to God's response to us, to our seemingly endless efforts to wrestle control over our lives out of his strong hands and into our own. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? All those years ago, my little sister wanted control over her gift from the tooth fairy. And how much more can we be tempted to grasp for control, to work and to worry and to strive as if somehow that and not the faithfulness of God would bring about his promises to us? But the Israelites, who have far more at stake than a tooth and a harmonica, they don't build a bridge. And they don't dig a tunnel. They don't build a boat or try to swim. They don't write a letter to Yahweh with a list of their demands and stick it under their pillow. No, they sit on the bank of the Jordan. They sit and they wait for three days until the word of the Lord comes to them through Moses' replacement, Joshua. And he says, stay here. Don't move. Don't move until you see the Ark of the Covenant pass by. Sit tight until you see this sign of my power and my presence go out ahead of you. You've never been this way before. So wait on me. And then follow me. Wait on me. And we'll go together. And maybe this is the true miracle of the entire story. The Israelites listen. The priests take up the ark, begin their procession towards the waters, which have spilled out over the river's banks, and the rest of the Israelites begin to fall in behind them. But even as the priests approach the edge of the Jordan, nothing happens. They come closer, and nothing Closer, nothing. Almost there, not yet. But they remember the word of the Lord. When you approach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. God doesn't tell the Israelites how he's going to do it. He doesn't explain step by step what's about to happen. He doesn't explain how carrying the ark and then standing in the river is going to result in anything beyond a couple soggy priests. God simply commands his people to follow him. Now this word command isn't one we much like, is it? To our sensitive postmodern ears, command reeks of impersonality. And we shudder at the thought of standards to measure up to or authority to be obeyed. How could a loving God command the Israelites to sit and wait when they are so close to the thing they've waited for for so long 
the thing that he promised to give them. But I think there's a different way we can think about obedience to the commands of God. The commands of God are an invitation. And the obedience God requires of us is to follow his presence. He simply says, wait, follow me. Don't try to do it your way. Don't try to do it on your own. Don't try to build a bridge. Don't put on those stupid little floaty arms. You don't need them because you've got me. He says, wait and follow my presence. And that is the kind of command that makes us long to obey. The command to be with God, to go where his presence goes, and to stay where his presence stays. That's a command that's gentle, and a command that's kind, a command that's loving. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. And this is the kind of obedience the Lord requires to lead his people into the promised land. So even if they were tempted to try to make a way into the promised land on their own, the Israelites still had every reason to obey, every reason to jump at the invitation to follow God's presence, because they can remember. They can remember that they've been up against the water before, caught between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And they can remember that the Lord God made a way. They can trust God when he says, follow my presence, because his presence hasn't failed them yet. And so we shouldn't be surprised that as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant touch the surface of the water, it stops up in a heap, making a clear path into the promised land. And the priests stand in the middle of the riverbed with the Ark of the Covenant and watch as the people of Israel pass by on dry ground. This landscape that just moments before was completely flooded, wet, and soggy is now dry enough and firm enough for the priests to plant their feet and stand as the entire nation of Israel crosses the Jordan and enters the long-awaited promised land. The people of God walk into the land, walk into the fulfillment of the promise, because that is where the presence of God leads. Standing here the day before graduation feels a lot like standing on the bank of the Jordan looking out into the promised land. We've been waiting for tomorrow for a long time, It's taken a lot of life, a lot of wandering to get us to this point. We've packed up and moved, left family and friends and jobs. We've trusted God with our futures and our finances. We've poured our lives into new relationships and watched semester after semester as people have come and gone. We've gathered around the table in Fletcher Chapel and around tables in the cafeteria. We've slaved over IBS assignments into the wee hours of the morning. We've read almost every word of Odin's classic Christianity. We've outlined Wesley sermons until our fingers could not type anymore. 
and now that promised land of ministry on the other side of seminary is almost here. So there's excitement and there's anticipation, but there's also fear. An urge to take back control, a longing to just be there already and know what lies ahead. Maybe, like me, you've had those moments of doubt, of wondering if we've come so far only to be left on the wrong side of the Jordan. But the truth is we don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to rely on our GPAs, our networking, our resumes, our charm, or even our diplomas. Because we too can engage in that holy practice of remembering. We can look back and see God's faithfulness every step along the way. Never leaving us. Never forsaking us. We can look back and see every prayer he answered, every heavy door he opened, every dark night he sat with us through, every paper he helped us write. He's always made a way. And all the while, he has been shaping us, forming us, and sanctifying us. And to those of you who have played a part in my formation, these three and a half years that God has given me at Asbury. Thank you. The Asbury community has shaped me more profoundly than many of you will ever know. And probably more profoundly than I will ever know. And I'm humbled and I'm grateful that this community, this chapel, that you been a means of grace in my life. Thank you. And especially as we journey through this Advent season, we can all look back and see that God's grace has been at work for us long before seminary began. It's by grace that God chose the humble, the lowly, and the weak things of this world to shame the strong. It's by grace that when God took on flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ, he came as a baby, born in a manger, and raised in Nazareth. It's by grace that he lived and died and was raised again so that we might be reconciled with the Father. And it's by grace that he sent his spirit so that even as he became like us, we might also become like him. It's by grace that he calls us, that he lives in us, that we might live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. And then, and only then, it's by grace that he sends us back into a broken and hurting world to proclaim the good news of the life we have found in him, to minister in the time between a child born in Bethlehem and a coming king who will reign in glory. Its grace hath brought us safe thus far. When we cross the Jordan of this stage tomorrow, or in May, or whenever that day finally comes, and enter the promised land of ministry on the other side of seminary, it will be grace that will continue to lead us home. We may not know what's coming, but we know the one who's coming with us.
the one who's already prepared the way. Standing here the day before graduation feels a lot like being a kid on Christmas Eve. I'm probably going to throw up tomorrow. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dr. Tennant, please don't be afraid to shake my hand. Thank you. <laughs> Growing up in my house on Christmas Eve, after all the festivities were over, after all the frenzy died down, after all the relatives went home and all the leftovers were put away, mom and dad would utter every child's least favorite words. It's time to go upstairs for bed. And that was the worst. <laughs> the waiting, the unknown. My brother and sister and I would have to wait in our bedrooms until Christmas morning. Until finally, <laughs> Mom and dad would come out of their room, and my brother would come out of his room, and my sister and I would come out of our room. We would all converge on the landing at the top of the stairs. And finally, my parents would say, let's go see what's under the tree. Friends, we have a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children, and they've already been prepared, even as he has been preparing us to receive them. Our only job is to wait, to trust that he will continue to be faithful to us, to trust that the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant that led the Israelites into the promised land is the same Holy Spirit that will be with us. All we can do on Christmas Eve is sleep peacefully as we wait to hear the voice of our Father. Come on, let's see what I have for you. Amen.